Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter two. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Seeking Truth in our study of Romans chapter 2. The theme tonight, don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans in 57 AD from the city of Corinth. Paul would tell the Christian Romans the bad news first. This letter is addressed to the Christians in Rome. Some of them are Jews from Israel. Some of them are Jews from Rome. There are proselytes and Gentile converts as well. By the middle of the first century AD, there could have been as many as 50,000 Jews in Rome. And this is important for our understanding of Romans to understand the edict of the emperor Claudius. Now, there was an expulsion of the Jews from Rome under the Roman emperor Claudius. He ruled from 41 to 54 AD. He expelled Jews from Rome to keep Pax Romana, to keep peace for Rome. Suetonius recorded it. He said that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christos, he, the emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. We hear that accounted for in Acts 18, Aquila of Pontus and Priscilla, his wife, had just lately come from Italy because Emperor Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So with Jewish Christians expelled from Rome, only Roman Christians were left behind to keep the church growing there in the capital of the empire. And in the absence of Jewish Christians, the Roman Christians became the church leadership. But in 54 AD, when Emperor Claudius died, Jews could return back to Rome. So Paul is writing this letter to the Roman Christians in 57 AD from Corinth. Some Jewish Christians had returned back to Rome at that time. Paul writes all Roman Christians to address some of the pastoral problems, the tensions that are going on between the two groups. Paul was writing on a parchment, a scroll. There were no chapter divisions. Those came later, my friends, in the 16th century when Robert Eistein was the first to number chapter and verses, starting with the New Testament. This was 1551. Uh, But Paul at this time was writing on a parchment scroll with no chapter divisions. This is one continuous letter one continuous argument. We got chapter one last week, first part of the argument. Tonight, we get chapter two, the second part of the same argument. Paul was explaining humanity's number one problem last week, idolatry. And that's why it's the number one commandment. Thou shall have no other false gods before me. Because what humanity did, we love the created things more than the creator himself. And we still do. Paul told the Romans that since they, fallen humans, did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. You remember the ancient Roman baths showcased a very visual sin, an act of unchastity that God did not originally intend. Sexual acts, though, were not the only condition that Paul addressed because all sin is disordered. And by that, I mean disordered, not what God originally intended, not what God originally created us for. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, contentiousness, malice, full of envy, 
murder, strife, deceit, malignity. I didn't know what that was. I looked it up. Malignity is when you wish evil to another. You're ill-willed or spiteful, malevolent, malice, hostility, hatred, the emotion of intense dislike. Do you ever really feel so strongly that you dislike someone? That's, that's what that means. There are gossips, said Paul, and slanderers and haters of God and insolent. Insolent people are rude people that lack respect, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventors of evil, those who are disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. All these sins, Paul lists, though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve those who practice them. So Paul first gives the bad news and the bad news that there's no one innocent. We all are guilty. And he'll tell us that in chapter three next week, that all have turned aside together. They have all gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. So we are all guilty of sin. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created for that glory. We were created to partake in God's own divine life, the life of the Trinity that was hidden in the garden of paradise. And instead of partaking in God's divine life, Adam and Eve chose a created piece of fruit over the creator himself and the divine life that God was promising in himself. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is anytime we choose created over creator. But God, so great in his love and abounding mercy, had them leave the garden until he could reveal his eternal plan for man's restoration back into the divine life with God. Living apart from God is not what we were created for. And that's the very first paragraph of our catechism, that God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. That's the first paragraph of 2,865 paragraphs in the catechism. Living apart from God is not what we were created for, but God is so merciful. And what seemed like such a wrathful banishment is really God's greatest love and abounding mercy. Why? Because if man and woman, now with mortal sin on their soul, were allowed back into the middle of the garden, and if they picked and ate from the tree of life, what would happen? They would live how long? Forever. Forever with mortal sin on their soul. Forever banished, separated from God for all eternity. So this is merciful. This is protection of God to banish them because God had given them freedom to choose. You cannot love God above all else if you can't choose to love him. That's what truest, deepest freedom is. So they chose the created and not the words of the creator. The loving father wanted to share his divine life with his climax of all creation, humanity, that he had breathed his very own breath into. Remember in Genesis 2, 7, when God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. There was no other creature God created that God gave his own divine breath to. So God freely created man to make him share in his own divine life. And for this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man and he calls man to seek him, to know him and to love him with all his strength. He calls together all men scattered and divided by sin into the unity of his family, the church. And to accomplish this, when the fullness of time had come, that's Galatians 4, God sent his son, as Redeemer and Savior in his Son and through him, he invites men to become in the Holy Spirit his adopted children and true heirs to his blessed 
divine life. Now, remember from last year in Genesis, only after the fall did God assign a name to the man and he called him Adam. And only after the fall did Adam assign a name to the woman, Eve. This was part of Eve's curse. Aside from pain and childbirth, her desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her now. He would dominate her. He would lord it over her. And this is disorderment. This is disordered. And what disordered means when you see it in the catechism, it means it's not God's original intention. This was not God's original design. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And another great act of mercy before he banishes, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, doesn't say animal skin, garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, Adam and Eve were created in the image and the likeness of God. They were luminous with God's glory, robed in God's glory. And many rabbis believe that Adam and Eve were made in the image of God and went from being clothed in that uncreated light, that luminous glory of God, to being clothed in a human skin, encased in a human epidermis. But before they exit the garden, God encased his own uncreated light, that breath of God, their divine souls into human skin, into human epidermis. And so after the fall, that image of God had faded. It was covered with skin. It couldn't shine as bright. And that likeness of God was tarnished, yet it's still deep within. We had some preternatural gifts before the fall of mankind. This is Catholic theology. Before the fall of mankind, we had impassibility. That's freedom from pain. No pain, no suffering. Before the fall, we had immortality, no death, freedom from death and sickness. We, before the fall, had the gift of integrity. It's freedom from concupiscence, and concupiscence is a tinder for or an inclination to disordered desire, desires God did not intend. And also, the last one, before the fall of mankind, we had infused knowledge, freedom from ignorance in matters essential for happiness. Now, after the fall, they're banished away from God outside the garden, and humanity now will know pain and suffering. We will know death. We're not immortal anymore. We will know concupiscence and have disordered desires, and we will now be ignorant in matters essential for our own happiness. We don't know how to be happy, but deep inside was still the breath of God, that divine eternal soul that does live forever. And Although they would leave the garden with concupiscence and ignorance in matters of their own happiness, they still had God inside. Now, we are ignorant of what will truly make us happy. You think that kitchen remodel is going to make you happy? Uh Uh-uh. The bathroom makeover? No. Hey, how about if I start a new job? Then I'll be happy. I'll be happy in this new position. No. How about if we get that lake house? Then we'll be happy. We've always wanted it. Oh, the perfect spouse. If I just had the perfect spouse, I'd be happy. No. We are ignorant of what will make us happy. What will make us happy? It's the very first psalm. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord 
and on his law, he meditates day and night. That's what will make you happy, to walk with the Lord, to meditate on his law. The only thing that's going to make us truly happy is sharing in the divine life with God. Everything else will fall short. God's divine life is already within us, encased within us. This uncreated light, his eternal breath, our forever soul. And when people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yeah, you are, because you have the spirit of the living God. The breath of God is uncreated light that dwells within your encasement of skin. So your spirit is perpetual. It lives forever, perpetual light. It longs to be absorbed back into that uncreated light of the Trinity. And anything less than that is disordered, not what God intended. And it won't make you truly happy, period, exclamation point. All sin is disordered desire, not what God intended for us. And it's a suppression of the truth of God and his word. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They were filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetous, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. They are inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but approve of those who practice them. So Paul's argument has started. There were no chapter divisions. Paul's argument will continue in Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another. For in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? So tonight's theme, don't judge someone just because they sin differently than you do. Jesus himself will preach a similar message on judging others. In Luke 6, Jesus said, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when you do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus said on judging, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, you will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. My friends, judgment day is coming for all of us. Who is the judge of our souls? Paul will tell us later in this letter, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So each of us shall give account of himself to God. He told the Corinthians, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There will be a judgment seat of Christ. We call it the particular judgment. 
immediately after death, the eternal destiny of each separated soul from the body is decided by the just judgment of Christ. We see signs at football games, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does what is true comes to the light that he may be clearly seen and that his deeds have been wrought in God. Now, who has the authority to judge? And John hits this really hard in John 5. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever he does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these shall he show him that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. And truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we see that beautiful painting on the Sistine Chapel, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the general judgment. We say it every Sunday in the Nicene Creed, he shall come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is the judge. The father has given Jesus the authority to judge. You see at his right hand is his mother, Mary, the mother of what? Mercy, mercy and judgment juxtaposed. A group of the saved ascend up, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, eternal life. A group of the damned, the condemned are pulled downward. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, eternal judgment, condemnation. So there are two choices for all eternity for your soul, resurrection of life to heaven or resurrection of judgment, condemnation to hell. And Jesus Christ is the righteous judge. Mary, the mother of mercy, has turned her head because all the time has been the time of mercy, divine mercy. But now he has come, the second coming of Christ, and he's come to judge the living and the dead. The time of mercy is over, and now it's time for judgment. Jesus, though, is the Father's face of mercy. But on that day, Jesus will be the righteous judge, the just judge, and it will be his word that is the standard of judgment. Sinful humans are not the judge. Jesus Christ 
is the judge. Two choices, resurrection of life in heaven or eternal resurrection of judgment, hell. And Jesus Christ is the just judge. And in these ancient icons of Jesus Christ, the judge, you see the four living creatures, the word of God, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is the word of God that will condemn, that will convict. So therefore you have no excuse, O man, whoever you are, when you judge another, for in passing judgment upon him, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, that when you judge, those those who do such things and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? I don't think so, says Paul. Remember before the fall, we had integrity. We had freedom from concupiscence, freedom from disordered desires. But now we have concupiscence. Paul will talk about this in chapter seven of Romans. But in Catholic theology, concupiscence is seen as a desire of the lower appetite, contrary to reason. It's a tender or inclination to disorderment, to sin, to not what God intended. When we go to confession, we are imparted with grace and the absolution in that beautiful sacrament. And we pray an act of contrition. And we say, we firmly resolve with the help of thy grace, Lord, to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. We pray to avoid the near occasion of sin with his grace. And for how long can you avoid that near occasion of sin? How, how long? Not too long because of concupiscence. We have this desire, this tender, this inclination for disorderment because we're fallen people. What integrity also, we lost, we lost that integrity. We lost freedom from concupiscence and that infused knowledge. We're ignorant to what can make us truly happy. So these disordered desires make us ignorant about our own happiness and God wants our happiness. Romans 1 said, we know for what we can know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And this week in Romans 2, he says, when Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Paul's talking about the law that's written on each of our human hearts and our conscience. When we're aware, when we're being aware of wrongdoing, our conscience, when we know right from wrong, is something that each person has to form. We must have a well-formed conscience because there's an unseen battle going on for each and every eternal soul. So what helps us form our conscience? God revealed himself to Moses and gave him the law, the Torah, the first five books. And the law was a great gift to the Hebrew nation. It was written by the finger of God himself and handed to Moses, not once, but twice. Moses crushed the first ones when he came down and saw the apostasy. But the law was a great gift to the Jewish nation because since humanity was now disordered and our desires were disordered and we were ignorant about our own happiness, God gave us a guidebook out of love because human happiness is so important to God. And the words of Torah were meant to be a guide. The words of the law that God revealed to the faithful Jews and they strive to obey the law for their own happiness. Happy the man who follows the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. But as time passed, the Jewish hierarchy felt fences around the laws. The basic thinking was this. We do not want to violate the law of Torah. So if we create extra laws, to protect the law of Torah, and we obey these extra laws, then we will not even come close to disobeying 
the law. And so they created 613 commandments, 248 positive ones, 365 negative ones, 613 mitzvah laws. And instead of the law being a joy and a delight, the law became a heavy yoke, like a ball and chain weighing down the people. And the fallen people couldn't keep all the laws. And in his great mercy, God sent judges, 12 judges to Israel. But the people fell into continuous cycle of sin. The fallen people still couldn't do it even with judges. So in his great mercy, God sent all the prophets and the prophets were anointed. The Holy Spirit would fall on them and they would speak and God would speak through those prophets. But still, the fallen people still couldn't do it. Moses, the lawgiver, had prophesied that God would send a new prophet, one like Moses himself. I will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. You will heed him. I will raise up a prophet. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. Who was that prophet whom Moses promised? Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So we might receive adoption as sons and live that divine life again. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overcome it. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. So Torah, the words of the law that God revealed were made into human flesh. And in addition to the scroll to read, now God's word was encased in skin. Now God's word was a living person that people could follow. And Jesus said, come to me, all who are labored and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So instead of a ball and chain weighing down the people, a heavy yoke, Jesus' word made flesh, his yoke is light and his words become eternal life for the people. Jesus becomes a new Moses. Moses's words were a guide, but Jesus's words are eternal life. And in John 6, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. He gave us bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. My father gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. I, I am the bread of life. And after this difficult discourse that they would have to actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. Most of them left. They couldn't handle this teaching. And Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Jesus was a new Moses. Moses' words were a guide, but Jesus' words are eternal life. He's the Deuteronomy 18, 18 prophet Moses predicted. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. And there's a big theme about repenting and believing. And Paul comes down hard on disorder, especially of sexual sin and all the other sin in Romans chapter 1, because all sin is disorderment, not what God intended. 
intended for humanity. But how did Jesus, the word made flesh, how did Jesus handle sexual sin? Well, we see in John 4, there's a woman caught in sexual sin. She's caught in adultery. She's had five husbands, six husbands. She's on her sixth husband. Did Christ condemn her? Fotina. We see another woman in John chapter 8. She's caught in the sexual sin of adultery. Did Christ condemn her? One harlot is from the north. Remember the divided kingdom? The other harlot is from the south. These are symbolic that all God's people were guilty of idolatry. Both women, one from the northern kingdom of Samaria, one from the southern kingdom, capital city of Jerusalem, are caught in disordered sexual sin, sin outside of marriage, unchastity. Does Jesus condemn them? Both sins are brought into the light of Christ, the eternal uncreated light of Christ. It's high noon at the well, and it's early in the morning with the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast to throw a stone at her. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter two, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.